let's go ahead and get started tonight. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1 in your Bibles and then page 31 in your notebooks. And we're going to finish up chapter 1 tonight. And in doing so, we're going to take a, a quick break, a quick topical break when we finish chapter 1 and spend some time the next two weeks talking about church discipline. So we'll have like a, a little short breakout topical study on church discipline. So that's what we'll be looking at the next two weeks. And the reason we're going to do that is because at the end of chapter 1, if you remember in verse 18, Paul is given has given Timothy a charge and then basically, I think it brings to mind the opposite of the charge that he's given Timothy. In other words, Timothy, do these things because if you don't do these things, you may end up like these two guys who were both known to Timothy and Paul. And quite frankly, may have been one of the reasons, we, we don't know for sure, but may have been one of the reasons that Paul is has left Timothy in Ephesus to appoint elders. These two men may have been elders in the church that needed to be removed. We don't know that for sure, but it's definitely, you know, a possibility. Let's go ahead and read verses 18 through 20 again, just to kind of get a head start on this section. It says, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some having shipwrecked or some having rejected, concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I deliver to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And remember one of the, one of the things that Paul tells Timothy in verse at the verse 18 at the end of verse 18 is that uh, by these, these prophecies concerning his spiritual uh, giftedness uh, the charge that he committed to him, which we he mentioned back in verse 3 and 4, that he would charge some that they would teach no other doctrine, uh, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies. Um, he's basically saying, by these, by these things and then by your spiritual gifting, Timothy, wage the good warfare. And, and, one of the, and part of the way that you wage the good warfare is verse 19, having faith and a good conscience. And so we looked at that last week and, you know, really what we're talking about, if, if we could boil it down to a summary here, having faith in a good conscience, having faith means, uh, walking by faith, walking by means of the spirit, um, believing sound doctrine, rejecting, uh, bad doctrine or false doctrine, and then having a good conscience uh, means that that we're in fellowship with the Lord, and and when the Spirit of God brings a a sin uh, to mind, that that we immediately confess it, that we don't become a person that's just looking to go through the motions, but ignoring internally our hard attitudes and motives, just just kind of brushing past those. That's all. Uh, involved in having a good conscience. And so we're about to meet uh, two men who did not have, uh, who did not keep faith or keep growing in faith or walking by faith or even uh, uh, that there's sound in the faith. You know, sometimes we use uh, faith as a verb. Sometimes we use it as a noun. And typically in the New Testament, when faith is used as a noun with the word the, in front of it, we're talking about the whole body 
of Christian teaching or sound doctrine. And so these men were not, not only were they not walking by faith, but they were starting to deviate from the faith, the sound doctrine uh, that the apostles taught, which we now have recorded in the word of God. And they were also rejecting a good conscience. And so let's kind of look a little bit uh, more closely uh, on these things. So number one, in order to remind Timothy why his role in Ephesus as an evangelist was so important, Paul related to him the history of two false teachers. And so there were at least two false teachers who rejected faith and a good conscience. And when we look at that word reject, it means to thrust away from yourself. They were, they were thrusting these two. They, in other words, they, they repelled these two things, faith and a good conscience. And the reason they did that uh, is because they didn't understand or value, uh, I believe, their internal relationship with the Lord. And when I talk about our internal relationship with the Lord, I'm talking about what is your relationship like with the Lord when nobody's watching, when nobody could see any kind of external thing that you might do. You know, many times, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, some of our service may fall into that category where, you know, we really don't feel like doing it. Our attitude is poor, but because so-and-so is going to see this or so-and-so would notice if I didn't do this, then I'm going to go ahead and, and do it. And so if we're honest with ourselves, uh, many times that, that temptation is there in the Christian life. Many people get good at ignoring when that's the case, and they just go through these external mo- motions. They maybe ignore uh, some of these internal motivations. I know, you know, there are many Bible teachers throughout the years who uh, who may have started out teaching the Bible for a for a pure and unadulterated purpose, but then they get kind of on the road of ministry and they start focusing on money and how they can make more money and how they can manipulate people to, to give and to do certain things. And, and before long, their, their whole, the whole internal, um, purity, if you will, of their relationship with the Lord is gone. They, they no longer have a relationship with the Lord in private, only in public when they're asked to pray or when they're asked to, uh, teach or where they're asked to serve or they're asked to lead some ministry, then, then the external show starts. And so, um, these two men had been repelling or pushing away, not only, uh, faith walking by faith, the faith sound doctrine, but also a good conscience. And so similar to the Galatian heresy, it seems that these false teachers were rejecting a life of faith. And since faith is important to both salvation and the Christian life, this could have been an affront to either what we call phase one salvation for justification or phase two salvation for sanctification. And, you know, really the Galatian heresy, if you look closely at it, it, it started with, with something that was, was closer to phase two salvation error. In other words, they were teaching that some, that a true Christian had to be circumcised or had to go on keeping the law of Moses. And then what ends up happening is many times when there's a legalistic intrusion into sanctification, it oftentimes works its way back into somebody's phase one or justification message. Um, and this is probably, um, you know, Paul had mentioned earlier the, the unlawful use of the law. It's probably where it fits in. This is probably one of those areas um, 
that these false teachers that he mentions here by name had rejected. They had rejected this concept that not only are we saved or justified by grace through faith, but we're also sanctified by grace through faith. And they had introduced this, this probably this law keeping system for believers in order to be sanctified. And then that begins to creep back into justification. And a great example of that is if you're familiar with the, the, the hair, I just call it a heresy because that's what it is, is Lordship salvation. That's exactly what has happened because people have said, well, if somebody's and they'll use, they'll start to define like truly saved or if they have true faith and, and, you know, the Bible never qualifies faith or salvation. It now qualifies the object of faith, but it never says, oh, do they have true faith? Do they have head faith? Do they have heart faith? The Bible never does that. Uh, men who, who are teachers do that. Uh, and I don't believe it's a wise thing to do at all, but, um, many times they'll, you know, Lordship teachers will, will, uh, the reason I think it's snuck back into their justification message was because they were teaching, well, if a true, if somebody's a true Christian, then they will have good works. Not they should have good works. Uh, we could agree with that statement. Believers are created in Christ Jesus for good works that they should walk in them. Not that they will walk in them, but Lordship teachers take it a step further. They say, they no, no, they will walk in them. And if they don't, then they're not really saved. And you see how judging out here, the sanctification, if they're not growing spiritually um, by, by measurable means. In other words, I can see them growing. If I can't see them growing, then they must not be saved. And you see how uh, oftentimes a phase two error in sanctification when it's legal oftentimes creeps back and, and causes a phase one error. And, and now the Lordship teachers, although they would, they would, not agree with this assessment of their teaching, they actually require works for salvation. They just require it on the back end, uh, but it's still it's still the same as requiring works on the front end. And so these false teachers had rejected faith and good conscience, and basically they had rejected walking by faith, living by faith. And that's why we've got Colossians 2 6 there at that point. You know, Colossians 2 6 says simply, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And so the same way that you got saved, delivered from the penalty of sin is the same way you are to uh, grow spiritually or to walk with the Lord. It's by faith and, and God wants to deliver you daily from the power of sin. And so it's by grace through faith. God's doing the work. God is providing the resources. We are simply walking by faith in what uh, he has done for us in the Christian life. And so they've rejected uh, faith. They've also rejected a good conscience. And so uh, this error was most likely an affront to phase two salvation. They were likely taking sin lightly, not encouraging believers to be faithful to confess their sins. Uh, you know, we talk about this a lot, but people who are very legal, law keeping in their thinking are generally interested in externals. And they largely ignore internal motivations or hard attitudes that th those kind of uh, sins do not even register in their thinking because they're thinking so externally about what they're doing or not doing. You know, it's a great encouragement to us. And I think this is what Paul was encouraging Timothy to do. Don't ignore internal indicators of being out of fellowship with the Lord. And some of those internal indicators may not, may not be 
um, licentious, licentiously sinful. They might just be irritation, agitation, anger, frustration, anxiety. All of these things are internal indicators that we're out of fellowship with the Lord because the Spirit of God wants to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our life. That's love, that's joy, that's peace. All of those things are the antithesis of what I just mentioned. And so, um, again, Paul is just instructing Timothy, don't ignore these internal indicators as, as, uh, as he describes a good conscience. And notice um, in letter B, he says that they suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And if we reject faith and a good conscience, it will result in spiritual demise, just as it did with these two teachers who suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now, notice carefully that it was not their salvation that suffered shipwreck, rather their faith suffered shipwreck. Uh, specifically here, it's, it's articulated. It's the faith concerning the faith. They've suffered shipwreck. In other words, they're not on the right course with sound doctrine anymore. And, you know, one of the things that we see is that believers who reject a daily walk of faith and a clear conscience first become stagnant and then they go backwards in their Christian life. And finally they end up in total shipwreck concerning their Christian faith. And what happens when, in, in a very physical sense, when a, when a ship is out maybe in the, uh, in the ocean or maybe on a lake and it, and it becomes shipwreck. Well, does the, does the ship cease to exist? No, it's, it still exists. It's, it's broken. But the point is, is if you suffer shipwreck, that ship is not going anywhere. It needs to be repaired. It needs to be restored if you're ever going to use it again. And so what they're talking about is not that something was uh, destroyed in the sense it could never be restored again. What they're talking about is that their faith, Paul is talking about their faith suffering shipwreck. And in other words, they weren't going to go anywhere in their Christian life continuing on the path that they were continuing on. Um, they were probably, you know, one of the things that, that happens oftentimes in sanctification, you know, the Bible teaches that the just shall live by faith. Legalism teaches that the just shall live by works. Now, I think the confusion always is that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, but the method and the means by which we're to execute those good works are in reliance upon the Spirit of God and the resources of grace, not cranking them out in our own efforts. And that's typically what legalism puts forth as the solution. And so what ends up happening is just like Paul describes in Galatians, a little leaven in one's belief, theology, leavens the whole lump. And, and so this is what I think we see here in, in this, the sad story of Hymenaeus and Alexander, uh, who's who started off rejecting faith and then rejecting a good conscience. And as a result, over time, they shipwrecked their entire theological system. We're going to see some of the errors that they bought into uh, as we kind of examine not only this passage, but also another passage in 2 Timothy. And so one of the things we notice is that Paul did not hesitate to name names in this letter to Timothy. And so this letter, remember, was eventually read in churches everywhere. And what we know about the heirs of these men comes from this passage. And like I said, another passage in 2 Timothy. And so let's look at where they went 
wrong. Well, here in verse 19, we've been looking at it. Number one, they had rejected faith and a good conscience. Now, that may say, seem very innocent, um, very innocuous, you know, and I've actually had people tell me um, on, on very important issues, like even clarity on the gospel. Well, you know, they may just not say it the way we say it. You know, they, they may not say it the way we say it. They may say it differently, but, you know, they're pretty good guys. Well, that may be true. They may be good guys. They may be nice guys. They may be likable people to be around. But what's end, what, what ends up happening is when somebody begins to believe an error, um, it starts to creep into other areas of their theology. And oftentimes that takes time for us to see what's going on under the surface before it kind of manifests itself and we know something's wrong. But these men had started with this rejection of um, stuff that maybe somebody couldn't even have seen if they had kept quiet, not not shown maybe where they disagreed with uh, the truth. They probably could have been kept under wraps for a while, but obviously they had um, they had been exposed at, at some level here. Uh, we see also in verse 20 that they had blasphemed. He, he says that he delivered them to Satan, which we'll talk about in a second, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so we're going to look at how they did this below. We're going to kind of look at that a little bit more closely. Let's go to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2. Let's look at a couple of other things. Um, at least mentioned concerning Hymenaeus. He's, he's mentioned in 2 Timothy uh, 2 and verse 16. It says, But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith. Of some. And so we see in verses 16 and 17 that Hymenaeus was engaged in worldly and empty chatter, which would lead to further ungodliness. And, you know, the, the phrase there, worldly and empty chatter, is just, um, you know, stuff that, that doesn't matter. Uh, worldly, uh, empty chatter, you know, joking, maybe joking around, speaking of spiritual things in a joking matter, or um, just kind of doing it in, in an empty, maybe even innocent way. And, and the problem is, is when people begin to relegate spiritual truth or spiritual teaching and begin to kind of just relegate it to the level of just worldly and empty chatter, just totally empty, you know, innocent, vain, they don't mean anything by it. Um, it seems uh, innocuous. It doesn't seem like that would be harmful at all. But what it teaches us here is it leads to further ungodliness because there's a lack of respect and response for, for God's truth. Um, maybe they were even uh, facetiously making fun of others who were taking the the truth too serious, you know, or, or something like that. We don't really know, but they were engaged in, in some, somehow in this, what, what he calls, um, uh, in the new King James profane and idle babblings. Okay. So just this idle worldly empty kind of chatter. And then in verse 18, we see that one of his false teachings was that he was teaching that the resurrection had already taken place. And by doing so, he upset the faith of some. So 
we see uh, internally they they weren't necessarily con- concerned with character, and then externally they were teaching false doctrine. And so we see Paul's response here to them. He he says he hands them over uh, to Satan, so they would be they would um, taught to be taught not to blaspheme. And so what does he mean, handed over to Satan? Well, that that's a, a phrase used to describe someone being disciplined from the church. They are basically what he's describing is they're being removed from the protection provided by the local church. And, you know, this is probably a, a harder concept to understand in our day, but um, early in church history and church social life, um, church was the person's social life and spiritual life. And so this would be very difficult, very embarrassing to the individual. You know, somewhere like even like Ephesus, where everybody, uh, everybody in the secular world uh, belonged to certain trade, certain trade classes and, and trade guilds. And, and oftentimes their social life revolved around these trade guilds. But these trade guilds oftentimes were centered around supporting polytheistic religion, especially in the area of Ephesus with Artemis and the Temple of Diana. Many of these, many of the the day laborers were involved in somehow supporting business um, at the temple. And so, when a person got saved, they they would many times lose their job or lose their manner of life, and church would become their new social life, their new um, spiritual life, their new social circles, their their group, if you will, that they belong to. And so to put somebody out of that who had already left these polytheistic uh, pagan trade guilds, join the church uh, by becoming saved and then being put out of the church, there was really nowhere left for them to go. And so this, this type of discipline was designed uh, to remove protection that would be provided by a local church. And in this state, uh, God could use any means necessary to teach them, including Satan. And this is very important. And if you've got a notebook, I would, I would have you underline or circle the, the words, teach them. That is the whole point of church discipline. It is not to body slam somebody, to hurt somebody. We're, the, the goal is not an angry heart to, to just put somebody's nose in the dirt. It is to change their thinking about the way that they're acting or uh, change their thinking about what they're teaching. That's the goal of church discipline. It's, it's a restorative goal. And, you know, 1 Corinthians 5 is mentioned there. That's also another key passage on church discipline. But in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul was dealing with a licentious sin. If you remember that story, we'll kind of, we'll reference that a couple more times. But if you remember the story, I'll just summarize it briefly. One of the believers in Corinth was having an open, sexually immoral relationship with his stepmother and the local church was doing nothing about it. And Paul is saying, you need to put him out of the church. And so that was a licentious sin. That was a cause of the church discipline here. Here, the church discipline was was caused by religious sin. The, these guys were actually uh, teaching false doctrine. They It wasn't like they were necessarily involved in some hor- horrendous licentious sin. But nonetheless, the, the consequence would be the same. And so um, notice that in verse, uh, or 
point four, it says that they will be taught not to, to blaspheme. They will be taught. And, and just even within that word taught, that you see that the goal in this discipline was restoration. The word translated taught is the same word translated discipline in Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, where it speaks of God disciplining his children. And so it refers to the moral and spiritual training of a child. And so the goal is to train them, to teach them, to uh, discipline them in such a way that they would learn not to go on in the activities and attitudes that they were going on with. And so in this case, they were blaspheming. And to blaspheme is to deliberately communicate that God is wrong and you as a human are right. It's, it's, it's a way, I think, technical definition. It's a way to take God's name and God's character and, and God's person and drop him down to a normal level versus an, ex, an exalted level, which is where he belongs, but to, to bring him down to the level of normalcy and complacency. And so one of the ways these men were blaspheming was, as we saw in their false teaching, by denying the resurrection and rejecting faith in a good conscience. And, um, you know, it, also, uh, we can just make this statement. If they were part of the false teaching that was mentioned earlier, where they were using the law unlawfully, they were, they were also, in that sense, blaspheming the work of Christ, especially in sanctification. They were basically saying, what God has done is not enough. You have to make every effort to keep the law. You've got to be disciplined. You've got to do this. And in a sense, when you, when you rob God of his glory and you rob God of uh, his solution, um, and you say, no, 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 God didn't really have it right. It's really this way. Um, you're blaspheming. And so... In that sense, Hymenaeus and Alexander may have also been blaspheming. Now, unfortunately, uh, we know from 2 Timothy, we read those verses earlier, that uh, that Hymenaeus did not respond well to this discipline. He had been put out of the church. He had been delivered to Satan that he might learn, that he might be restored. But by the time he writes 2 Timothy chapter 2, we see that he has still not responded to that discipline. And then we don't know how Alexander Responded. Alexander, um, there is an Alexander mentioned in Second Timothy. Alexander the coppersmith, who, who was said to have done Paul much harm. He's mentioned in chapter four, but Alexander was such a common name. We don't know if that's the same Alexander that he that Paul had enacted church discipline on here in verse twenty. So uh, we don't know, but we know that Hymenaeus did not respond well, and that by the time that Paul wrote in Second Timothy, that he had not been restored. Um, now, obviously, we don't know his whole history, so hopefully, maybe at some point, uh, he did, but we have no record of it in our documents. That concludes chapter one, and so now we want to kind of break out and do a real quick doctrine on church discipline, and to do so, we want to first define church discipline. What is church discipline? Well, number one, it's it could be defined as the corrective measure taken by the church to deal with unrepentant sin in the life of the believer. In fact, go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, um, and then we'll read through 13, 2 Corinthians 12, 20, uh, which says this, For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, 
lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time and now being absent. I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest. And if I come again, I will not spare since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. And you can see that Paul is is basically threatening church discipline uh, for anyone who has had not repented of of these particular sins that they they had been engaged in with the culture. Now, uh, notice too that Paul's not looking for perfection. You know, we're not uh, going around the church looking for every time somebody fails and saying, "Ah, got you, you're out of here." You know, kind of deal. It's it's the type of ongoing sin where somebody doesn't change their mind about what they're doing. They're they're doing something clearly biblically wrong that's that's then presented to them and and they don't respond to the truth. They they reject the truth. They they say basically I'm not interested in doing what you're telling me to do. There's a a lack of humility in their response. There's a lack of uh correction uh humble correction in their thinking and so they go on unrepentantly they just don't change their mind and nothing can change their mind they're gonna do what they want to do and so um in addition to the actions that may have drawn our attention to them in the first place what makes this type of situation needed is their response to corrective measures if they're if they're rebelling and blowing through the corrective measures, then the the ante being upped, so to speak, is a church discipline situation. If they humbly respond but then still struggle with the sin, that's a totally different story. They're they're at least responding to the sin. They're at least changing their mind about it. Now, whether or not they have the strength to overcome temptation, if the case may be, that's a totally different story. But we're talking about Church discipline is required when somebody is unrepentant. They refuse to change their mind about an issue of sin in their life. And this is the goal of church discipline. We're looking for a change of mind. This ultimately leads to restoration with the Lord and with the local church. And we don't have time to go through all those verses. But, you know, Matthew 18 talks about gaining your brother. When when somebody responds to your correction or challenge, they you've gained them, the text tells us. Galatians 6 1 says, Restore your brother with gentleness. There's a care involved in, in disciplining or correcting a brother. And then first Timothy 1 20, we already looked at. Um, he delivered them to Satan that they may learn, that he might teach them, that they might change their minds. So that's always the goal of church discipline. Now, what are some biblical reasons for church discipline? Well, let's look at uh, a few of these reasons. In fact, I think we're going to look at five total, five reasons, but it should be noted at the outset that church discipline must be administered with extreme care and should never be a, a reaction to a failure in the life of a believer. All believers 
sin. Isaiah 53, 6a, all we like sheep have gone astray, right? It's, we, we know that about believers. So again, it's, you're not looking to uh, body slam or grind somebody into the ground every time they make a mistake. That's not church discipline. That's not what we're talking about here. In fact, church discipline should be a last resort for, for any church. That ought to be the, the very final last resort, avoid it at all costs until it absolutely becomes a, necess, uh, a necessity. And it's definitely not responding to somebody's failure. You know, oh, they sinned. All right, they're out of here. You know, the kind of deal. I mean, we'd have very, we'd have a lot smaller churches if that's the way we approached church discipline. And, you know, there's a difference between, um, you know, uh, weak carnal, weak carnality and rebellious carnality. Um, rebellious carnality is I'm going to do this and, and I know it's sin and nobody's going to stop me. That's, that's a rebellious, rebelliously carnal person. Weak carnality is you know what? You're right. That sin, I don't want to do it anymore, but I am struggling with continuing in that sin. Please help me. And there's a humility involved there. Both may be living in sin, but one has made up their mind that they're going to continue living in sin regardless of what the word of God says. And one says, you know what? The word of God is correct. I'm wrong, but I just don't know what to do about it. So you, you, we're talking about two different situations there. Now, before we ever consider church discipline, it's important to get to know the erring person. Of first importance is to know if this person is a believer or not. If he or she is not a believer, church discipline should not enter the picture. And, um, you know, let's go to first Corinthians five. Now, this is that other section I told you about, but you know, it's really interesting. You know, if, if somebody's an unbeliever, how could you expect them to live like a believer? They, I mean, they don't even have the spirit of God. They don't even have uh, a new nature. They, they can't even understand, uh, the word of God. I mean, there's, there's so many things that are, that they're lacking in order for us to expect some kind of Christian behavior from them. And so this is why Paul is very clear on church, church discipline in first Corinthians five. Look at verse nine. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle, not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. And so we see that that separation or discipline in this sense is reserved for um, an, an ongoing sinful brother. Um, again, what do what do unbelievers need? They don't need to be church disciplined. They need the gospel. That's the message they need. That's the only message they need. They don't need to hear how to be a better father, a better husband, a better employee, a better this, a, how to you know how to make wise decisions, etc. They need the gospel. That's what they need because. Apart from the gospel, they they can't even be wired for sound. They're not even born again, and so they they have no ability to carry out 
Christian teaching in a consistent way, or quite frankly, they have no ability to carry out Christian teaching in an acceptable way to God, even though they may look better to us. Um, they're still not acceptable to God, and they can only become acceptable to God when they put their faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work. Now, number three, the Bible does not warrant the exercise of church discipline because of a personal offense, a difference of opinion, or personal animosity. What do we mean by that? Well, church discipline should not be used as an excuse for fault finding. You know, church leaders should not retaliate against somebody. They shouldn't become spiritual police officers or spiritual inspectors or, well, that person, you know, gave my wife a, a crossway look. So I'm going to, I'm going to go after him and I'm going to find something wrong with him to church discipline him and get him out of the church. I mean, that's not what we're talking at all. And in, in many times, uh, in the cases of some, uh, areas, especially authoritative kind of top down leadership models, this is exactly what happens. Some kind of personal offense or difference of opinion. And somebody then starts to go on a fault finding mission to, to get that person who offended them out of the church. So church discipline is not a way for church leaders or prominent church members to exercise vengeance on someone that they don't get along with. In fact, church discipline is meant to be the ultimate act of love because you care enough for the person to do the hard thing. Proverbs 27, 6 tells us faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And so you might say it this way, church discipline should come from a, a broken heart, not an angry heart. It should, it should be a last measure resort because you love somebody so much that you're, you're forced, you're compelled to move to that last step of putting them outside of the church and then cutting off fellowship with them. And that should hurt. Uh, if you truly care about somebody, it shouldn't give us, it shouldn't give somebody great pleasure, uh, or fulfillment of, of an angry heart. And so some of the specific mention, uh, reasons that church discipline is mentioned in the Bible are as follows. And letter A, it may be administered for constant irresponsibility in providing for one's own physical needs or those of one's family. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians 3, the book uh, just to the left of 1 Timothy, verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw there's that separation from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And so we can see this 
this irresponsibility for providing for one's own physical needs or those of one's family was a reason for church discipline. He was basically telling them, you you note that person, you remove yourself to that person. This is somebody that's not um, responding to Paul's epistle, uh, that, that has this ongoing rejection of truth in this area. And, and they were to church discipline. This person removed this person from them, removed themselves from that person. But again, notice in verse 15, not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And so you see, again, that the heart of church discipline behind that instruction. Letter B, church discipline may be administered for continual lack of response to biblical correction from individual believers and church leadership. You know, this is a, a great passage and it shows uh, at least some principles of, of steps that one would take um, in church discipline. And so in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, very familiar passage says this, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, the idea is he responds to what you're sharing. You have gained your brother. Verse 16, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But even if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. And so you see um, in this particular scenario that Jesus gives, you see loving correction and you see confrontation that, that kind of gradually escalates up the chain. But, but what's also very, very important to see in this passage is continued lack of response. The one who's doing the offending, they continue to reject the truth and they reject the correction first from an individual, then from an individual with witnesses and then from church leadership, they just reject any kind of correction. And so then it becomes necessary for that last part uh, where he says, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, uh, withdraw yourself uh, from this person. Letter C, church discipline may be administered on believers who caused division, uh, divisions in the church. In 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4, Paul attributed this type of behavior causing divisions, uh, ongoing carnality uh, in a local church must also be corrected. And so we've got some examples there. Um, and, these, and these here in, in letter C, these are doctrinal divisions. These are false teaching divisions. These are uh, intentional disruptions or opposition to local church leadership. You know, Romans uh, chapter 16, let's, let's read Romans 16, 17 through 18, which gives us uh, an example of this. It says, now I urge you, brethren, note those or, or spy them out, kind of get your scope on these kind of people who cause divisions and offenses that are what? Contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. And so you see that one of the reasons that false teaching and and doctrinal divisions um, are oftentimes handled or need to be handled through church discipline is because they impact other people. They impact the church. They hurt uh, the body of Christ. And so this ongoing type of uh, divisions that's being created by certain people need need to be addressed 
or confronted and may lead to church discipline. Letter D, church discipline may be administered for immoral conduct that continues after receiving correction. Again, note this is not a a one-time failure. This is an ongoing sin. And when confronted with the sin, it's an ongoing rejection of the word of God, an ongoing rejection of this correction. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians 5. That's the story of the, uh, the young man, the believer, who was uh, continuing an ongoing sexually moral relationship with his uh, stepmother. Letter E, church discipline may be administered on believers who propagate false teaching. And again, we saw that in Romans chapter 16, uh, 2 Timothy 2, that's where Hymenaeus was promoting that the resurrection had already passed. So that's a false teaching and it does damage to others. If you look back at 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, in verse 18, see again, one of the impacts of false teaching and one of the reasons that false teaching can escalate to a point of, of church discipline, putting somebody out of the church is because it's, because it impacts others negatively. And look at verse, uh, chapter, second uh, Timothy two, uh, verse 18, it says who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already passed and they overthrow the faith of some. And so again, we see that their false teaching spreads out and impacts others. Letter F, church discipline may also be administered for incessant sins like those described in 1 Corinthians 5.11. You know, Paul names some specific sins here. He says, uh, he, he wrote to, to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person. Now that's what he deals with in 1 Corinthians 5, a situation with an immoral person. But notice the other categories of sin that, that he identifies, covetous, an idolater, uh, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. And he says, not even to eat with such a one. And so remember, this instruction is for the entire church. And and this is also um, a, a problem oftentimes in church discipline. Maybe a, a church leadership decides that they're going to enact church discipline on a believer, but then you've got other believers in the church who don't want to be a part of the church discipline. And so that's one of the keys to effective church discipline is that the whole church has got to buy into it and they buy into it for the good or the benefit of the believer who's being disciplined. They're not helping anybody by still being nice to that person or still eating with that person or still hanging out with that person or getting caught up with that person. They're actually harming that person. They're harming the whole process of church discipline. And so uh, in that sense, church discipline when it's enacted by church leadership has to be observed by the whole body to have its, its complete uh, effect uh, that, that the Lord would have in this person's life to, again, restore them to a proper way of thinking. So number five, any disorderly lifestyle could be cause for church discipline. We read that passage in Second Thessalonians 3, 6, uh, which says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you... Keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. Notice 6a, keep away from every brother. Paul commanded these believers to not have fellowship with every brother, not just some, but every type of brother who leads an unruly life. Also, the Greek word translated keep away from is in the middle voice, which tells us that it implies they were to disassociate from such a believer for his or her own good. In other words, 
if you are the one removing yourself or keeping away from an unruly brother, part of who's going to benefit from that is not only the unruly brother, we've already seen that, that hopefully that's the goal of church discipline, but also the person who's pulling away from them also benefits from doing that. When they recognize this type of brother, even they will benefit by pulling away from that believer. Notice he says they lead an unruly life. The, the word unruly means out of order. And in Greek, this was used to describe a lazy soldier. Unruly implied a person who was insubordinate, idle, and neglectful of duties. You know, and that, and that type of believer is just not a good testimony for the church of Jesus Christ. They're just, they do not uh, provide a good testimony for the Lord. And um, not only that, but many people uh, are negatively impacted by unruly people. And, and what I mean by that is they think, well, if so-and-so is not going to do anything, it's okay if I don't do anything. Oh, so-and-so doesn't come out for this. Okay, well, I don't have to come out for this. Oh, so-and-so doesn't serve in this way. You know, everyone's putting the chairs up, but so-and-so's over there, um, you know, drinking the rest of the soda. I'm going to go hang out with so-and-so. And there's this this idea that there there's an unruliness here, but it but it actually impacts others. And, and this is true in any organization, but even in, as he uses an example of a lazy soldier in Greek, you know, imagine if you had an army uh, with a lazy soldier, how quickly that, that potential behavior could spread to others, you know? And, and so it's it, part of it is about a, a culture um, that's going to go forward with the Lord and, and be faithful to what the Lord has called them to do, the mission, the vision that God has called the local church to do. And so many unruly people uh, have a negative impact on the body as a whole. Uh, not according to the tradition which you receive from us. The word tradition refers to a doctrine or a command communicated one from one to another. And so this error described a believer who deviated from the sound biblical teaching as given by the apostles and recorded in the New Testament. And then if we jump down to verse 14 in 2 Thessalonians 3, it says, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Notice Paul commanded the Thessalonian believers to note these brothers as opposed to ignoring them and to not keep company with them. Let's go ahead. We'll we'll tie the knot there tonight and we'll continue this uh, short breakout session on church discipline when we when we study again next week 